Our scripture lessons today are from both the Old and New Testaments. The first from the book of Daniel, uh, the third chapter, beginning at the 16th verse. And this picks up in the midst of a story about three Jewish exiles, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are living in the Babylonian captivity. They are living in a foreign land ruled by a foreign king. And the king has ordered that all people shall bow down before a large golden statue, which is to suggest that they are to give obedience to a god other than the god of Israel. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to bow down. And this is where the story picks up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. If our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was so filled with rage against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face was distorted. He ordered the furnace heated up seven times more than was customary and ordered some of the strongest guards in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So the men were bound, still wearing their tunics, their trousers, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Because the king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so overheated, the raging flames killed the men who lifted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up quickly and he said to his counselors, was it not three men that we threw bound into the fire? And they answered the king, true, O king. And he replied, but I see four men unbounded walking in the middle of the fire and they are not hurt and the fourth has the appearance of a god our second lesson is from the fourth chapter in philippians we've been preaching through philippians this month in our journey to joy and perhaps the capstone text of this journey to joy is found in the fourth chapter beginning at the fourth verse. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. 
and keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me, but had no opportunity to show it. And not that I'm referring to being in need, for I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. For I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. By your grace and through your mercy, we pray, O Lord, that you will allow these words to come to point to the word just read and to the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ, where we pray this in his name. Amen. Robert Frost, in his great poem, Tree at My Window, imagines lying in bed and looking out the bedroom window and seeing there the tall tree in his yard. Every night as the poet goes to bed, he sees it through the window and he wonders about something that the two of them share, he and this tree, and he wonders if what they share is the weather. Frost concludes the poem this way, but tree, I have taken you, I have seen you taken and tossed, and if you have seen me when I slept, you have seen me when I was taken and swept and all but lost. That day she put our heads together, fate had her imagination about her. Your head so much concerned without her, mine with inner weather. Your head so much concerned with outer, mine with inner weather. Outer weather, inner weather. We know what the bard is talking about, don't we? We all can relate to the weather outside and we all can relate to the weather inside the meteorological and the existential. Weather is that great shared human experience. We don't have much trouble talking about the outer weather. We talk about it all the time, you know, nice day outside, or looks like it's gonna rain, it's hot and sticky, a little chilly for this time of year. The outer weather always gives us something to talk about because the outer weather is always changing. It's one of the things that makes life interesting. What is the weather going to do? I presided over enough outdoor weddings to know that an outdoor wedding makes wedding planning a very interesting thing. You never know what the weather's going to do. I suppose it's no different than the inner weather. Our souls get stirred with tempests over the uncertainty of life. What's, what's going to happen today? What's going to happen tomorrow? We toss and turn in our beds and can't get our minds off that inner weather. What will happen with the stock market? What will happen with my health? What will happen with my marriage? What will happen with my children? What will happen with the Michigan football program? All the inner weather that keeps us up at night. Strange 
how that whole thing works, these hypothetical imaginations we come up with as to how things might go, and in particular, how badly things might go, those gales that sweep across our souls, that whip up our fears and our anxieties and make us want to bolt everything down to the ground. You, you got to do whatever you can to safeguard against every scenario, buy more insurance, hoard as much cash, avoid every risk. Don't stick your neck out for anybody. Every man out for himself, hunker down, every once, every one to their own little storm shelter. And all of it might make what the Apostle Paul has to say almost unintelligible. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. And then the kicker, our memory verse for the month. Do not worry about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Wouldn't that be just a wonderful thing? That the peace of God would actually guard our hearts and our minds. We might think right away that that is impossible. We've worried long enough. We've tossed and turned too many nights. We have too much inner weather to even imagine that there could be such a possibility. That there could be this peace of God that like a storm shutter could be drawn around us that we would not be so blown about. That, that somehow we would be able to resist these forces that cause us to fear and to hide and to worry. And then we realize that the one who writes this letter, the Apostle Paul, the one who makes this promise, has composed these words as a prisoner. Likely Paul was under house arrest for having championed a God higher than Caesar, and now everything for Paul was up for grabs. Would he waste away in solitude the rest of his life? Would he be carted off to the gallows? Would he be strung up on a cross? There was enough for the apostle to toss and turn about. But of all people, Paul says, don't worry about anything. Say your prayers. Give thanks to God. And the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It, it, it's almost as if Paul is saying that the God who calls you and the God who guides you and, and the God who loves you is this God who's never, ever going to leave you. You are never alone. Despite the circumstances, you are never alone. Your destiny is already in the hands of God. And that may be the greatest of all the truths to know, that our destiny is already in God's hands. Now, that's not to say that God has predetermined the events and circumstances of our lives. I don't think God does that. 
but that whatever our destiny, we are already in the hands of God. No tempest can tear me away from the hand of God. Which I suppose is a part of what the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is all about. These three faithful Jewish exiles who refused to bow down before the king's statue. It's as clear as day to them that they cannot bow down before that king. They cannot bow down before that king's statue. So they don't. And the king then rounds them up and threatens them with the fiery furnace. And the three men said, guess what? We're in the hands of God. And if we get thrown into the fire and the fire burns us up, we're in the hands of God. And if we get thrown into the fire and the fire doesn't burn us up, we're in the hands of God. And so into the furnace they go and the king looks in and sees not three people, but four people. And he says, didn't we throw three people in there? And the king's men all say, oh, yes, king, we threw three people in there. And then the king asks, then why do I see four? And we all know the answer to the question. The peace of God, the presence of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The first church I served in Philadelphia had been pastor for a long time by a good German Presbyterian, August Young. August and his wife had a daughter, Elizabeth, who married a young reformed pastor named Clark, Clark Poling. And when World War II broke out, Clark immediately enlisted into the chaplain corps and ended up on the SS Dorchester. And as fate would have it, the Dorchester on its way to Greenland crossed paths with a German U-boat and was torpedoed. It took 27 minutes for the Dorchester to sink. The scramble for lifeboats and life jackets proved that the ship didn't have enough of either. So Clark and his fellow chaplains, four of them all together, gave up their life jackets for four other sailors, and the four chaplains went down with the ship. Huddled arm in arm and praying, they went down with the ship. There's a chapel in Philadelphia in honor of the four chaplains. Most said that there were only four people in that huddle, but some say there was a fifth the peace of God, the presence of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Another chaplain in that hard war was Reverend Gordon Cosby, who accompanied the first wave on D-Day and spent that longest day pulling wounded soldiers to safety, earning him the Silver Star. He, he said if he survived that war, he would return and start a church that took seriously the call to Je of Jesus to love neighbor, 
He started the Church of the Savior in Washington, D.C., which required anyone who wished to join, first, a commitment to serve the poor, and second, a copy of your income tax to prove that you were giving at least 10% a tithe of your income to the church. Not a bad idea. I think we'll think about that. The latter requirement was born out of an experience that Cosby had when he was a young preacher. The head of the deacon board had come to him and told him that there was a widow in the congregation that had six children. The widow, they estimated, could not be making more than $40 a month as a cleaning lady and who nevertheless was giving out of that $40, $4 a month as a tithe to the church. The well-intentioned deacon said that she could not afford to do this. And would Pastor Cosby please go and tell her that she was relieved of her obligation? Cosby later wrote, I am not wise now, I was less wise then. I went and told her of the concern of the deacons. I told her as graciously and as supportively as I knew how that she was relieved of the responsibility of giving. As I talked with her, Tears welled in her eyes. I want to tell you, Pastor, every time I put those $4 in the plate, I feel the presence of God. And now you're taking away the joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice because the joy of life is found in this knowledge that our destiny is always in the hands of God. We can rejoice to know that we are truly free to live the lives we were intended to live. We can rejoice to know that fear doesn't have to rule us. We can rejoice to know that our worries don't have to control us. We can rejoice to know that we can dare to love and dare to give and dare to sacrifice because our destiny is in the hands of God. Because when there's three in the furnace, there's a fourth. When there's four on deck, there's a fifth. When there's one who's giving more than she should give, there's always another presence. This week I was rummaging through my files and I stumbled upon the front page of the New York Times from November 12th, 1996. I often clip out articles from newspapers and put them in my files, but here was the whole page. And, and the reason I had the front page of the New York Times from November 12th, 1996 was that on that front page were two separate stories, but two stories on the front page of the New York Times about two Christian women who had performed two amazing acts of courage and generosity. These are stories you've heard me share before. The first article was about our friend Kim Phuc Phan Thi who visited us last year, the napalm girl who had been burned to within an inch of her life during an American airstrike. She, she landed on the front page because the day before on Veterans Day 1996, she appeared before the Vietnam War Memorial and spoke to the nation a message of forgiveness and reconciliation. In her journey from that terrible day, June 8, 1972, she had found Jesus Christ who compelled her to forgive her enemies. Later that day, she met with and forgave the American serviceman who had mistakenly called in the strike and destroyed her little village and completely altered her life and his. But the peace of God 
guarding her heart and her mind and knowing that her destiny was in the hands of God, Kim Fook, in the company of another presence, gave the grace that God had given her. And then right next to that article, adjoining that article, but a separate article, was an article about Osceola, Osceola McCarty. Osceola McCarty lived in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, in the house where she had grown up. She was an only child, and when her parents died and the rest of her family died, she remained alone in the house with a dog named Dog and a pig named Hog and a cow named Hazel and a Bible she had rebound several times. She worked as a laundress, daily taking in people's laundry. She barely spent any money that she made, and every week she took the rest of the money she made and put it in the bank after she had tithed to her church. When she had turned 88, she told the folks at the bank that she wanted to give the money that she saved away and could they help her. Together they decided that maybe she could give it to the local college, the University of Southern Mississippi, just down the road. Osceola thought that was a good idea because she had never been to college. They wouldn't have allowed her back then because she was African-American. And wouldn't it be nice if the money could be used to help someone else to go? Unsure of how many more years she still had yet to live, but with the peace of God guarding her heart and mind and knowing that her destiny was in the hands of God, Osceola and the company of another presence delivered to the University of Southern Mississippi a check representing her life savings of $150,000. Two women in, on the front page of the New York Times how starved the world is for such courage and generosity. What would you do with $150,000? What would you do with someone in your life who needed forgiveness? Could you imagine your life as a good headline? Don't worry about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, the presence of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a lot of weather going on inside you and me. I was up half the night tossing and turning before I wrote the sermon. And by now you're thinking it wasn't worth losing sleep over. <laughs> for a lot of us, for a lot of us, there's a lot of weather. For some of us, there's heat from the furnace. For others of us, there's just uncertainty as to what's going to happen. Tempests in our teacups but where there's one, there's two. Where there's two, there's three. Where there's three, there's four. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let us pray.
Oh God, as we bring these commitments before you this day, we pray that you would help us not to be timid. Help us not to be blown by the wind. Help us not to be driven by fear. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Remind us of your presence. Surround us with your peace. And inspire us to live lives that are in your hands. That we might find that joy that you've always wanted us to find. In Jesus' name, amen.